Ophthalmology Off the Grid is supported by Imprimis Pharmaceuticals, Inc., bringing dropless therapy to cataract surgery and less drops for post-LASIK and other ocular surgeries. For more information, visit the websites godroplets.com and lessdrops.com. Open, outspoken, it's Ophthalmology Off the Grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Multifocal versus monovision. It's a debate full of opinions and options. Dr. Daniel Chang and Dr. Jay McDonald each give us insight into what they consider the best option and why. They also share pearls for patient selection, monovision sweet spots, and groundbreaking research in optogenetics. Listen in. It's going to be a great episode. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today I have with me a good friend, Dr. Daniel Chang. Um, Daniel, how are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's our pleasure. Daniel, one thing that we uh, we don't agree on all the time, uh, other than our basketball teams, is presbyopia. But I do always enjoy learning from you. I enjoy uh, the way you think about things. And so um, I'm sure everyone who's out there uh, wants to hear your perspectives on presbyopia, including me. And I'd like to have a little bit of a dialogue on the ways you treat presbyopia and maybe the ways that other people uh, think about it and some, some common pearls that we might all be able to take forward with us. So with that, why don't you give us your perspective and we'll have a little bit of a dialogue. Great. No, fantastic. Happy to talk about presbyopia. Um, I turned 42 this year, so I can start noticing the effects of presbyopia. So it becomes a personal issue. And I think one thing to remember is, you know, we're, we're used to treating presbyopia and thinking about it when a patient comes in as just a pair of reading glasses, get them out the door, move on to the next patient. Um, but for someone like myself who doesn't wear glasses, it's going to be a major hindrance to my life and an inconvenience um, to deal with it as that progresses. So when it comes to presbyopia, we always have to treat it. So either that or we're going to have a basically visual loss at near. So if we think about presbyopia as a 99-cent pair of glasses, then we're going to be reluctant to do anything surgically for it. If we think of it as a accommodating visual loss, a progressive disease that affects 100% of the population, leaves us unable to see up close, and uh, there's no medical treatment for it, then we can think have a little bit different perspective. We do have surgical treatments right now. Uh, there may be medical treatments coming in the future, uh, but basically it's something that we have to deal with. And again, a pair of glasses works, but it also has its compromises. If you can't find your reading glasses, um, you have bifocals, it's def- definitely been demonstrated the, the increase in uh, um, difficulties with steps and curbs, and when I talk to my patients, they all acknowledge that is if somebody has a pair of bifocals and trips because they miss a step and they fr- fall and break a hip or something, compare that to maybe having some halos at night from multifocal lenses, then that becomes you know a bigger issue. So there, it always has to be treated, and every treatment you have has some sort of side effects. Do you think that because our patients and even we as doctors know there's a $1 solution to presbyopia, it somehow has cheapened the value of near vision in a disparate way? That's a a great way of thinking about it. It, Glasses are an accepted part of society and sometimes even a valued part of society. And I think it's similar to the uh, discussion and the argument when LASIK first became popular is, hey, you know, glasses work. Um, then, then why should we do something different? So there's, certain, there's always the option. I think the important thing is not to force the patient down any particular pathway. As our surgical options improve, we should offer them, perhaps even encourage them because the patient doesn't even know that is an option. Um, but we shouldn't choose for the patient. We should let them decide, hey, there's multiple ways of approaching this, you know, which, and these are the compromises with each, and which one would you like to have? Sure. And I think that, you know, when you, when you realize how special it is, what time, what era we live in, in all of human history, 
it's only the last few decades that we've had the ability to change someone's natural vision. Um, you know, glasses were a huge, uh, important uh, invention when they came out, uh, you know, centuries ago. Uh, but now it's the first time in human history where if someone has a problem with their refraction or now even with presbyopia, we have legitimate options where we can change uh, how they see, you know, typically for the rest of their life. And um, it's interesting how even though we have those um, advantages at our disposal, sometimes we just fall into the same pattern of wanting to do what we've always done because that's the status quo. Um, one thing I love about um, you and some of uh, some of my other colleagues is just challenging the status quo and making a you know a new level, a, a new horizon. So, um, tell me some of the um, some of your most favorite ways of treating presbyopia, whether that is um, some of the new technologies that are coming out, maybe some of the older technologies. Give me your perspective when you meet a patient and they tell you that their goal is to be free of glasses, both up close. Um, or maybe intermediate and in the distance, what are your go-to solutions for presbyopia? Well, basically I ask the patient, you know, I, well, I assess the patient and see what they're dealing with. Someone who's 40 or 41 and just starting to see a little bit of presbyopia in their plano, or maybe they're myopic, I'd be concerned about doing a surgical procedure versus someone who's significantly inhibited or limited by their presbyopia or maybe have some incipient cataracts. Um, uh, that, that's going in terms of what I want to do. So basically I'm looking at the amount of hindrance to the lifestyle, at least weighing the options in my mind in terms of what uh, the risks and benefits of what p potential solutions I may have and just discuss it with them. And, you know, currently we don't have any medical approaches or eyedrop approaches to the treatment of presbyopia. There are some that are being studied. Uh, corneal inlays, uh, at least the uh, um, AccuFocus just got, the camera inlay just got approved. Mm -hmm. So that does have a new option. I don't have any experience with that, but I'd be interested in looking into that. Um, and certainly from a cataract surgery or a lensectomy standpoint um, is the option of using multifocal lenses, um, monovision perhaps, and different approaches from a surgical standpoint uh, to treat the presbyopia. And then tell me about your cataract population. You know, it's, it becomes almost an, an easier conversation when someone has lost or demonstrated loss of corrected acuity, when they're complaining of glare and halos and they've got a legitimate cataract, and they are also having those same goals of wanting to um, maybe get a little bit more youthful vision having more independence um, from spectacles. Tell me about your conversations with your cataract patients who you know, want to have uh, more independence from glasses at all distances. It's definitely a risk-benefit assessment, and I think that changes with time as technology improves with the lens extraction procedure, as technology improves with the intraocular lens options, um, and uh, potentially even exchangeability in the future, is that it would change our uh, uh, layout and that risk-benefit profile, and the options, I'd, I'd weigh them differently. Uh, but basically, I, I look at uh, what their lifestyle is, what kind of things they like to do. And I also look at their, their physical, um, uh, how tall they are, how long their arms are in terms of what options I want to offer them uh, from a treatment standpoint. Well, and that's a great point. You, you've brought up that um, the patient's physical stature, not just their eyes, not just how much you know, coma they might have or other um, um, features of their, of their uh, cornea, but their physical stature also their hobbies, you know, if they've got long arms or short arms, you know, in the past we had basically one multifocal or maybe a couple that had very similar properties in terms of where the near point was. But now we have new options with um, you know, the Technus line that's come out, um, uh, the Acrosoft Restore now has some different um, ad powers as well. Um, tell me about where the sweet spot is for you and your practice and what the pros and cons are for you know, how you would choose one of the multifocals versus another. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's I start with a, a questionnaire, a similar one that Steve Steve Dill introduced that concept. I've modified it for my own practice. 
um, basically get a feel for what the patient does on a day-to-day basis, um, how they how much they, they do certain activities. And again, I look at how tall they are sitting in my chair and kind of where they're holding things when they're, they're reading. Um, a lot of times they're used to basically what they're used to. They like what they're used to, not necessarily what you think would be best for them. Um, the uh, I use exclusively the Technus multifocal line or family of IOLs for my surgical treatment of uh, presbyopia because I, I like the optical quality that's that it gives both in spherical and chromatic aberration uh, improvement and reduction. And I think that's why um, uh, I get really, very good results after surgery. Basically, the three different models provide a near focal point at 13, 17, and 20 inches. And I basically hold my hand in front of the patient or, or I have them hold something and I figure out how far away that is from them. And I say, hey, I can put your, your best focal point here. All three of the lenses give excellent uh, vision through a full range. 80% of patients were glasses-free, di- distance, intermediate, and near for all three uh, lenses, at least 80%. So they do get a full range of vision, but there are certain points where it's optimal. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my experience with multifocals has been a mixed bag. And I think that a lot of ophthalmologists who are out there may have tried some of the earlier um, you know, multifocals, whether it was the array, whether it was the first or second generation restorer. And you know, my, my uh, experience was mixed. I definitely had some patients who loved their vision. They really were appreciative of the fact that we could give them back, you know, some near vision and distance. I had a fair number of patients who were just underwhelmed and were maybe a little bit, um, they felt like they paid more than, than the value I, I provided for them. And then I clearly had some patients who were incredibly unhappy. And so it's that it's those patients who are vocal and who need a lot of chair time and a lot of handholding that you start assessing whether or not it's worth your time um, and effort and are you doing the right thing for the patients. And, you know, I've had patients where I've put a multifocal in one eye and a standard lens in the other eye and they quite prefer um, the quality of vision in the, in the monofocal eye. Uh, and again, this was uh, this is with a an Alcon platform, and that's just what I was using at the time. And you know, I sort of said to myself, you know, am I doing the right thing? And so after that patient um, was was quite unhappy, I really just felt like for me in my practice, I was going to try to find a solution to presbyopia that maybe was a little bit more forgiving. I kind of use a runway analogy. I like landing the plane on a wide, long runway. And so I kind of have taken a pro in a more of an older approach um, where I'll take a patient who wants to have more independence from glasses and I will tend to recommend monovision for them. And the reason for that is if they patient, and I, and I tend to be in this intermediate range um, where I try to correct the non-dominant eye for about a minus 150 and the dominant eye clearly for, for Plano. And they can still fuse between, they don't lose their ability to fuse. And I've had a lot of success with that. And so for me to, to consider dipping my toe back into the water with multifocals, and I'm, I'm clearly intrigued. Um, I think your point is well taken that the Technus platform of lenses has um, some different optical qualities than some of the other lenses that we've used in the past. And, and that transfers over to their multifocal that they're using. I'm, but I'm still just a little bit nervous. So give me some pearls for patient selection in terms of patients who may be, maybe not an absolute disqualifier, but some relative red flags or yellow flags. And if you're, a pa- if you're talking to another doctor you know, like myself who's maybe thinking about getting back into the game, who are, what's that low-hanging fruit out there where you're going to be more likely to get a, you know, a happy patient than a problem patient? 
you know, typically low-hanging fruit is the hyperopes, people who are used to wearing glasses all the time, people who aren't used to just taking them off to read, people with worse cataracts, um, people who are coming from a, a worse situation, um, obviously otherwise healthy eyes, um, ideally kind of laid-back personalities. Um, although I have no problems doing these in engineers, I enjoyed the discussion with them beforehand, and they tend to understand it if you spend the time with them beforehand. A lot of surgeons out there have been burned, I think, by the previous multifocal experience. And unfortunately, I think it's given the category of lenses kind of a, a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, one thing I want to emphasize is not not everything, not all multifocal lenses are created equally. Even though some of the terms we use are very similar, and the numbers on the box seem the same. It's kind of like the megahertz myth that we, we went through with computers where it was as long as the megahertz or the megapixel myth on cameras, the bigger the number, the better the camera. Right. There's a lot more to optics than the numbers on the box. Um, what I'm doing is encouraging manufacturers to, to talk about issues like refractive index, spherical aberration, chromatic aberration, because you really have to start with correcting the aberrations to start with good quality of vision. Um, in a monofocal, the patient may or may not notice, but if you're going to do diffractive uh, optics and create multifocality, if you don't start with great aberrations or minimal aberrations, you're just going to really suffer um, afterwards. I think your point is well taken. You know, when you talk about diffractive optics, I think there's sort of this myth that diffractive optics are associated with poor visual quality. And people don't realize this, but there are telescopes that are made with diffractive optics. And diffractive optics do not in any way, shape, or form necessarily have to correlate with waxy vision or decrease in visual acuity. Clearly splitting light, you're going to be um, having some um, light focusing at near and some at distance, but diffractive optics in and of themselves do not have to be correlated with degradation in visual uh, quality. Absolutely. Diffractive multifocal um, and if you look at the FDHR results for the new low-ad lenses um, for, from uh, um, AMO, is that you, you do get improvement in halos with smaller uh, amounts of ad. And it is possible to make a diffractive monofocal, which has would essentially have zero halos or the same as your, your, base, or your uh, baseline control. Um, but we've kind of associated diffractive, that word, with halos. Right, and uh, I think we see we see the rings on the lens, and we and think, we think that's the rings, rings that we see in as the halos in the light. And you're right, Canon does offer a line of diffractive lenses, kind of as a intermediate expense solution to chromatic aberration issues, um, as way of not charging as much as their high end lenses, but using diffractive optics to improve the quality of the vision. Certainly, you don't see halos or circles on your pictures. Um, because of that, so I think we have a lot to learn from a from an optic standpoint, not just assume they're all created equally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Daniel, any other pearls, any other disqualifiers, people that would maybe not be a good a good choice uh, for those new surgeons uh, starting out? You know, I think, uh, you know, just like we talked about before in terms of screening the patient, both from a, a physical standpoint in terms of their eye and the exam, and also from a personality standpoint and a lifestyle standpoint. Um, you know, I was an investigator on the uh, 325 and the 275 Technus Multifocals. And uh, one thing that I realized is a lot of my staff members were having their family members or themselves uh, being enrolled in the study. And, you know, you you can convince yourself or you can convince a patient um, or influence them to like what they what they have. But you can't convince your staff because they get to hear the patients unfiltered. And I had a a staff member and then a nurse and her her mother, nurse's mother-in-law. She did so well. Her father-in-law got in. So it's a lot of people who were. Um, related to the process who wanted to get these lenses into their eyes and they've all been very happy with it. So really, I think it makes a difference um, what uh, product you use. And I don't want this to be a, a sales or promotional piece here, but I think there really is optically a difference and we go look into it. It does make a difference in terms of your outcomes, in terms of the amount of patients you can make happy 
um, with your, your, your surgery. You know, and I actually had the good fortune of meeting one of your staff members the other day um, who has um, a multifocal lens in her eye. And uh, I was actually kind of blown away because, you know, your staff is not going to give you, uh, they will tell you the absolute truth. And if they don't like something, if they like it, if patients like it or don't like it, um, you know, in staff actually, I don't know how your staff is, but if, if patients are kind of grumbling about it, about something, they they kind of steer on pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, they can pretty quickly, and, and they'll come tell me, and 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 it's actually really important for us to listen to our staff about those things. So when you tell me that your staff is actually excited about this, they're seeing happy patients. You know that actually, not to say I don't believe you, but when you're when I meet your staff and, and talk to them, and they tell me, and and I, I'm asking them what they can see, and it's 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 pretty incredible. You know, someone who kind of swore off multifocality years ago, you know, I, I thought it was impossible. But, Dan, you actually got me intrigued in, into dipping good, my good. toe back in the water. I thought it was impossible. Um, and I think a lot of other surgeons around the country are, are maybe reevaluating the new generation of multifocal lenses. And uh, we all want to find that solution for our patients. They're going to make them happy. At the end of the day, if they're happy, we're happy. Yeah, you know, it was, it was neat. You mentioned the staff member that you met. Um, I was out, uh, we brought our staff down to Universal City Walk and we were out at night looking at all the neon signs. So I sat, stood next to her and pointed to different light sources and asked her what she saw. Because I think that was a very educational experience for me because live description is different from patient's recollection. Absolutely. You have, you have a little less filtering there. But you know, for, for those thinking about dipping their toe back in the water, I say jump on in, the water's warm. <laughs> so one more thing I want to add is we, we haven't talked anything about pricing and reimbursement with, with anything. Um, and we started with the medical needs of the patient. Um, and we talked about side effects because we're all going to deal with some sort of trade-offs and side effects with, with our choices. Um, but the financial aspect is an important one as well. But I think it's important not to lead our thinking and discussion of correction of presbyopia with the monetary discussion. That should go at the end um, because as surgeons, our job is to really help our patients and, and think about their needs first and then make sure it works financially for us. Absolutely. I always think if you keep the patient at the top of the pyramid, we're always trying to take care of them. The rest works out, you know, works itself out. So, uh, Daniel, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I know that a lot of other surgeons are going to enjoy hearing this as well. So thank you for taking some time out of your day to make this happen. And uh, we look forward to many more conversations in the future. So uh, this is Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Dr. Chang offered some valuable pearls for patient selection and their use of multifocals in his practice, but I wanted to hear from someone who truly feels that monovision trumps multifocality. Dr. Jay McDonald is a mentor of mine who has done a great deal of research in monovision and is one of the key opinion leaders on the subject. I caught up with him on Skype to discuss. Today I have with me Dr. Jay McDonald. Jay, it's just so good to have you here, and I'm just curious how you've been doing lately since you've had a little more free time on your hands. Yeah, Gary, I must say I've certainly enjoyed having time to pursue uh, some things that I was unable to pursue while in uh, active clinical practice, and uh, I, I can recommend, highly recommend it. Well, what's interesting is just as a little background, I met Dr. McDonald. Um, I think it was back in 2008. It was at the ACES meeting in, Port, in Puerto Rico. Um, I was a resident at that time, and I remember that you and Dr. Doug Katzev took me and my wife out to dinner. And I'll really never forget that. We had a great time. It was nice getting to meet some surgeons who were really prominent in their career. And just that mentoring and willingness to share ideas was really special. Uh, I never forgot that. And, and really beyond that, 
It was the next day or two that I heard really one of the best lectures I've ever heard in all of ophthalmology. It was really your talk about how monovision trumps multifocality. And all I have to say is, of all the talks I've heard, that probably is the one that made the biggest impact in terms of the way I think about optics, the way I think about clinical practice, and really the way I think about presbyopia correction. So I've always wanted to have a chance to pick your brain uh, about your thoughts on monovision, and that's what this podcast is really about. Um, They've given me an opportunity to interview people that I think have great ideas, great minds, and I, I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity to unpack Uh, this whole concept a little bit, to learn a little bit more from you and also for you to share your knowledge uh, with other folks who might be listening. So with that being said, give us a little bit of background in terms of your understanding and your development of understanding of the visual system and your opinions and the reason why you feel that monovision is such a great way to treat patients desiring continuous vision. Okay, Gary. Um, Yeah, I was probably like you in 2008, several years before when I began uh, using some multifocal lenses. Multifocal lenses came out in the t- early 2000s and uh, it were strongly hyped as a way to um, that seemed to make sense to see far off and up close and to become spectacle independent. However, um, I had a, a, a family who had operated on um, the father, the dad, was a chemistry professor at the university, and I'd done monovision on him. When his wife came in to have her surgery, um, she lo- loved how what her husband was doing. She had heard about multifocal lenses, so she thought she wanted to trump him huh. uh, and get the newest and latest and greatest. And from all the uh, standards, she was a perfect you know, a good candidate. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I told her, I said, you know what your husband's doing and loving. I said, I, I feel real comfortable about. And, but anyway, she pushed me into doing, uh, a multifocal. I said, well, this is great. You know, here's a motivated patient. And anyway, I did a multifocal lens on her and began a real struggle, had a perfect refractive result. But she really had a tough time adjusting to it and started ha- you know, the typical complaints of patients that have some problems with multifocality. And what that did for me, she was kind of the uh, tripwire um, because her husband was a, was a very, very picky person. And I was somewhat tentative even to move him to monovision, you know, to do monovision right. on him. He was extremely happy. Anyway, so I thought, you know, what we're doing, uh, I don't understand it. I couldn't understand her. You know, I couldn't explain in my own mind her complaints versus his complaints, etc. Uh, so I thought um, it's probably my obligation to try to under to understand what's really going on. So I decided to. Sometimes I do this to just jump head first into this. And I read some books on visual, uh, how we see and visual cognition and sort of located who in the literature of, how, of neurocognitive vision, the guru was a guy, a, a wonderful person that uh, over in at Vanderbilt, Randolph Blake. Mm-hmm. So I cold, cold called Dr. Flake one night and started talking to him about how I wanted to understand what was going on 
with multifocality, monofocality, monovision, multifocality. And I said, um, and, and we just had a hit it off, which, uh, which was wonderful. And so I asked him if he would come. I mean, the guy obviously knew exactly how everything works in the brain and in the eyes. And I said, "Let's. Would you come to Fayetteville and spend a few days? I bought you a plane ticket. Spend a few days with me. Let's look at some patients. I'll, I'll try to educate you about multifocal lenses and amount you know what we're doing. See the patients, and let's figure out what you know, so you can tell me what's going on." So that was that was kind of the beginning, and in fact, uh, Dr. Blake came. We had uh, wonderful experiences interviewing patients, and he was took notes and everything. And then we sat down for the next day or two, and really wrestled through what was going on. And uh, he he and I uh, later collaborated on some uh, papers and textbook chapters in uh, David Chang's book on uh, the mastering refractive IOLs, uh, the couple of chapters I wrote in there about the neurocognitive vision of monovision versus multifocality. So that's my history. I haven't told you the knowledge base that I acquired. I shared that with you, but you asked, you know, how how I got started. In sure. Well, that's so interesting. You know, I find that our patients can be our best teachers after residency, but you have to spend enough time with them and you have to listen. You have to really care about what's going on. You have to want to not to repeat your mistakes. You know, I had a patient like that with EBMD who ended up being really a huge, she had a really big refractive surprise. And it changed the way I practiced cataract surgery in, in patients with EBMD just because I went through the process of reevaluating how I take care of that group of patients. So it's wonderful that that's the case because I think it's something that we as physicians whether it's multifocals or LASIK and even beyond the anterior segment in all of medicine, if you want to do better, listen to your patients when they have a problem and don't blow it off. Take it to the next level and come up with a solution. That's where this has been so enlightening for me because I don't have to go through that process with every patient because I can learn from you and I can learn what patients are going to be good candidates or maybe a better approach. And so as I recall, and you can tell me if my recollection is correct, as I recall, if we're talking about monovision, there really seems to be a sweet spot, and I've used that in my own practice, really trying to correct the non-dominant eye for that minus 150 result and trying to nail the dominant eye with as close to plan a result as possible. And it seems like that you're really getting the best of both worlds, and it's not really monovision with one eye on and one eye off. It's really more of a continuous vision where the brain can summate the data from both eyes simultaneously. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to that conclusion and why minus 150 is really the sweet spot for monovision? Well, um, let me start at the first just a little bit. I, and you rush me along if I'm dragging this out a little bit. I want to uh, just refresh everybody that the visual human visual system is a contrast-edged based visual system. In other words, we see it, we, the whole system's designed to see edges. Right. And the finer the edges are, we see those in high frequency, in the high frequency range, a mid frequency range. And then of course the large gross movement, large edges, uh, we are seen in low frequency. And so what happens, the farther away you get the two eyes, the more the signal-noise ratio comes in from the one eye that's out of focus 
and it degrades a little bit more the signal that reaches the visual cortex when it puts it together. And of course, with the the closer they are in refractive uh, terms, the closer the uh, high frequency, especially the high frequency wavelength, the high frequency seeing are, are matched. And so you have a better discriminating of edges, which gives us the discrimination, of course, of the smaller the edges, the finer the discrimination. So, and, and then to try to explain in a short period of time, refer everybody to those chapters for a little more a bit lengthy and probably a little more uh, cogent <laughs> explanation, but I'm going to try to do this real quickly. If we start off with the analog, when light, once light hits the opsin disc in the retinal pigment, uh, we go from analog to digital, and everything after that is basically an electrical signal. Right. Now, Jack Holliday's pointed out that in, uh, in other people, that when you use multifocality, the first, the first degradation you get is in just the analog part because of the uh, diffractive lens and the structure of a multifocal lens, you lose about a 17% degradation of the signal. The next thing that happens that I think we need to pay attention to is in the ganglion areas of the retina, there are a million uh, a million neurons or and about you know a million neurons and a million synapses and after that when we get to the visual cortex there's actually over a billion neurons and synapses so if we can just picture the relativeness of that computing power you think of the ganglion cells in the retina as an EEPROM chip say of a million synapses and in the computing power of the visual cortex in the billions. So there's a thousand there's over a thousand fold power differential in the computing power. Right. So what happens when you have a multifocal image that falls on the retina? In the retina it gets uh, uh, the signal to noise ratio gets broken down. In other words you get more static because you have those two images that are not congruent falling in the and being processed by the retinal ganglion cells and by the time those happen you have a loss in your signal to noise ratio in that visual signal that you can never recover now once that multifocal image and gets to the brain you know you have this amazing visual computing power that can that is just out of sight but still starts working on a degraded signal when you're using a multifocal lens or an image. Contrast that with monofocality where the signal is pure all the way through the retinal ganglion. So that distance that you're looking at, if it's in focus and you have the refraction right, but when it comes from that the left or the right eye to the visual system, it hasn't lost any power of the signal. There's no degradation of the signal. So even though when you have a right eye, say, that's Plano and a left eye that's plus 150, those, when those signals are not congruent, but when they get to the brain, the brain has a pure signal-to-noise ratio, uh, a pure signal 
to work on. And so then it can use its tremendous computing power and put together these images that are separated by a doctor and a half. Whereas in a multifocal, yes, it does have both a near and far, um, a near and far, but in each eye, that signal's been degraded. So what happens is um, you can never uh, get the power of that that's uh, that broken signal in a multifocal lens ever recovered. Where that comes into play uh, significantly is that luckily we have a lot of redundancy built into our visual system. And when we're 25 or 30 or 40 or 50, and we have fairly uh, a complete well-functioning macula, you know, that degradation, a fall off of uh, 10, deci 10 decibels or so, uh, doesn't start bothering us. But if you take an, on top of that a small amount of macular function or anything like any other diseases that would cause that signal to be uh, degraded, it really adds on top of that 10 decibels that you've lost with multifocality. And the patient then uh, will certainly experience uh, a, a loss of acuity. And that's the thing that I am most concerned about. If you can get the same amount of the same effect using monovision and preserve that integrity of the retina and the processing on each side, then you're going to always have the very best vision that patient can have in each eye, whether they lose one eye, whether they get macular degeneration in the other eye. Uh, and so that's probably my, the biggest concern personally that I have, although certainly I'm not saying that you can't have satisfactory uh, multifocal spectacle-free patients. Uh, that, that certainly happens, and you see that every day in your patients. I'm just saying in the long run, and for, what, for, my, uh, for my own self, maintaining the integrity of the uh, processing power of each eye with monovision just makes more sense to me in the long run. So that's probably more story than you wanted to hear, but uh, I hope that kind of explains where, where I'm coming from. No, absolutely. Let's look at that. I've got a few questions. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my perspective. You know, I found that monovision is really like landing a plane on a really long runway. It's wide. It's, it's a really forgiving procedure. And what I mean by that is if I'm going to do monovision with someone, in my practice, I've not always gone through the hassle, especially in cataract patients who may or may not have worn contact lenses in the past. I've not always had them go through the contact lens trial process because I feel like they're not really getting a good preview um, because they're looking through their cataract. Um, I also know it's a really safe place to land because really if they don't like it, they can always revert back to spectacles as a last resort. And they don't have so much anisometropia at a diopter and a half that they're not going to be able to tolerate bifocals. So first of all, I feel like if you're going to go with mini monovision or continuous vision at a diopter and a half offset, you're really landing in a safe place. You haven't disqualified the patient from really any other option. You know, the second thing is doing a refractive touch-up is pretty easy because you could do laser vision correction on one or both eyes should they not like their focal points. So that's another fail-safe, really. The third thing is really the fact that patients with astigmatism are still candidates as you can 
use toric lenses or perhaps uh, astigmatic cuts to correct astigmatism. And with that, you can give a really nice monovision result. So it's really a tool that I've liked to use. I've enjoyed using it. It's highly effective. It's really a safe way to have really happy patients. My story is somewhat similar. You know, I came out of residency in 2008. I started using the Restore lenses, and I really didn't get a great wow factor. Actually, really, as a matter of fact, I had a number of patients who were just really unhappy. You know, it was a situation where I just scratched my head and thought, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. I feel like I'm getting a good refractive result. You know, the four opter, they're not really accepting much correction. You know, they're measuring pretty good, actually, but their Snell and Acuity is is 20-20 and J1 or J1+, plus, but they're just really dissatisfied with their quality of vision. Now, a lot of patients can adapt to that, and over time, we know with neuroadaptation, you know, it does help with that a little bit, but I, I just really was, I wasn't satisfied that this platform was going to be a good workhorse for me long-term. So for a long time, I really just said, you know, multifocals aren't for me. Uh, but recently, I've decided to dip my toe back into the water, and I've been using the AMO ZK Boo, which has about a two-diopter ad. And what's really interesting about this and really all of these uh, AMO lenses is the defocus curve. And the defocus curve really keeps a 2020 to 2025 level of vision from zero through about three diopters. And so, and that's with the ZK, the ZL, and the ZM. And, you know, I've been pretty cautious with my patient selection. We want to make sure they don't have a lot of coma, that they don't have a high angle kappa, and obviously that they have some you know, reasonable expectations. But Jay, I've got to be honest with you, I've actually been blown away with how many happy patients we've had. Uh, these are patients who are not complaining of waxy vision. They're, you know, they're not, they're not taking a long time to adapt. These patients, many of which I'm frankly scared to have them do a video testimonial because I feel like they may raise expectations for other patients. So I, I don't know that I'm ready to, uh, to double down on multifocality. I'm still processing what is the best approach, but I have to be honest, I think these lower ad multifocals are really hitting that sweet spot and maybe it's because of exactly what your research has said about monovision. Uh, but really sort of applying it to multifocality where you're flattening the defocus curve and, and you're keeping both images within a fairly close range and you're providing a high signal to noise ratio to the brain. With their acrylic being a lower index of refraction acrylic, you don't have a lot of chromatic aberrations spreading the blue to red light on the retina. And it just seems like this lens and these group of lenses have really provided a nice multifocal that is giving high quality of vision. That's actually what I'm seeing, and frankly, I'm surprised at how good they're seeing. So with that, what would you say to that? I just want to hear your feedback on what I've said, and maybe these newer generation of lower ad multifocals, you know, what do you, what would you say about that? Well, I think, Gary, there, it's, that's laudable, and I think uh, over time, these few, th these things that you can fix, in other words, just like you talked about, uh, getting rid of aberration, anything that lowers the uh, signal to noise ratio, uh, moving the focus curves closer together so that you don't have uh, near the spread, I think you're still back. To, and and uh, there is a lot of redundancy in the visual system of a person with good retinas and, and good functioning visual cortex. And I think uh, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I agree that certainly your patient satisfaction has gotten better uh, as 
multifocality and the modality of multifocality has improved. I think there's still some, uh, you still have the basic issues of the uh, of loss of signal to noise ratio that I think that maybe in the long in the long haul will catch up. You know, will catch up with the patient. Sure. I mean, you can't change. Uh, the technology is what it is. There's definitely give and take. But I actually am happy to have another tool in my belt to help patients who maybe are interested in having that full range of vision. So maybe just to switch gears a little bit, what other things are you researching? I know that you have an active mind. You're never one to really take a break in terms of your thinking and learning and contributing. So what are some new things that you've been interested in? New things you've learned, things that you feel like are advances that maybe the rest of us um, who are putting our nose to the grindstone, maybe we haven't heard of yet. And I'd just love to hear you speak on that. Well, uh, Gary, as you alluded to, uh, my uh, pastime reading is scientific uh, journals and, uh, and not necessarily ophthalmology. I've been very continued to interest in the brain and how it functions and especially neurocognitive vision, but in the brain, how it functions. 2014, a man named Carl Dissador won the, and I didn't, I hope he's not listening because I probably mispronounced his last name <laughs> out at Stanford, won the Nobel Prize for uh, developing a technique called optogenetics. And I don't want to go into great detail about it, but I actually done some presentation. I got so excited about it. It is a way that we can identify and stimulate individual neurons in the brain. And I think it will be, it's, it will take us beyond functional MRI in understanding and treating multiple neural disorders and also understanding how different, you know, uh, I think we have some big questions about what, what makes me feel how do I, how do I conceptualize things? You know, where is my soul? I, I call it uh, my lecture optogenetics pathway to the soul. Wow, but, uh, that's it's been a very it's a amazing convergence of four or five uh, amazing technologies from genetics to viral uh, manipulation to opsin control that gives us the ability by a, a light mediated through laser uh, stimulation and a, re a record of individual neuron firing. So I, I, uh, that's just had me on fire the last year, I guess, I, uh, reading and putting that all together. And then um, the other thing from a clinical standpoint I might share, so be on the lookout, I'll just say, uh, be, on, be on the lookout for optogenetic research because it's going to be the papers you're going to see will be coming out in the next five years that are going to tell us a lot more about the visual system and how we think and how the brain works. That's the other is uh, I was, um, as many of you know, photography has always been my uh, secondary issue uh, in, in life. And I spent a month in India last year photographing India, but also visiting a colleague and friend uh, that I'd collaborated on a several projects for Daljit Singh. And Daljit, in 1995, I started getting uh, emails and photographs of Daljit's from Daljit trying to elucidate. He kept saying, I, I think I found the conjunctival lymphatics. 
I think I've I think I found the corneal lymph. I found uh, corneal lymphatics. I found how they've communicated, uh, and on and on. And now, after uh, he just last year has published a chapter in a book about the corneal and conjunctival lymphatics, their connection, their relationship to the lucid interval, which is a cirque at the peripheral of the cor- periphery of the cornea, a common lymphatic-like tract and canal of Schlem and their interconnections. And I think it's going to help us understand and uh, uh, it's going to open a whole new light of looking at the cornea and uh, fluid in the cornea, cornea and fluid transfer in the cornea conjunctiva and canal of Schlem. So I, I, I could go on about that, but uh, that, that's, I think that's probably one of the most exciting things I've seen in ophthalmology. You know, it's amazing. As soon as you think you know everything about the eye, an advance like that comes along and you think, wow, there's, there's still so much to learn. And that's why I think this field is so exciting. You know, we get to help people in such a tangible way, but we're always learning new things. And for that, Jay, I just want to say thank you so much for your contributions to our field. You're truly a giant in our field, and you've made my clinical practice better and so many other doctors, better surgeons, and better thinkers. So that being said, I just want to say thanks for coming on and giving us some things to chew on today. Oh, Gary, it's been my pleasure, and I well remember that dinner uh, we had in uh, Puerto Rico, and maybe while you were thinking what I was thinking. I was observing uh, one of the bright upcoming minds in ophthalmology, and I knew it at the time. I I loved your inquisitiveness. I loved your way of uh, fighting through and trying to understand the things that were going on, and it was obvious to me that uh, you were going to be one of the coming leading thinkers in ophthalmology, and you certainly have, have done that. And it's been a joy for me to have some time to talk about uh, things that I love and think about all the time and keep me busy and uh, reflect on my time in ophthalmology. So so thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And I want to hear from you maybe next year um, an update on this optogenetics. Uh, this sounds pretty incredible. So Jay, thanks again for that. And uh, for all you out there listening, this is Dr. Gary Wirtz with Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks a lot. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is supported by Imprimis Pharmaceuticals, Inc., bringing dropless therapy to cataract surgery and less drops for post-LASIK and other ocular surgeries. For more information, visit the websites godroplets.com and lessdrops.com.